Good morning. We've already had a great morning, haven't we? Earlier this morning in the 950 service, I was able to uh, baptize one of our college students, uh, Jefferson Richardson, baptized him. He's a UofL student, cross-country runner, and uh, it was just really the treat for me to be a part of his development. What's wrong with you? I'm really, all morning, I start the sermon, she interrupts me, she's walking up with a sign, she did it last week, I have to start to, what is wrong with you, Karen? I'm reminding everyone, in case they need reminding, to come to church next Sunday and to bring someone with them. Could you hear what she said? What'd she say? Everyone bring one. So, let me tell you about, we had this weird, awkward idea, and it's more awkward and weird than good. But we just, we just, Karen and I decided we wanted to, instead of buying a sign to put in front of the church that costs $300 that nobody reads, let's tell everybody in the church that you're the sign. Next week, we're beginning a series of messages called Hope Rising. And uh, when life makes faith difficult, it's going to be four weeks in a row. And uh, I know a lot of people are going out of town for spring break, but there are going to be a lot of people in town. And I really believe that this message has an opportunity to reach people in a way that Christ will really touch their life. I am praying daily for those who will be here. And thank you, Karen, for being awkward with me this morning. Yeah. Literally, the last two services, I kept forgetting she was going to do that. And I go, what is, what is going on? I want to welcome you if you are here today for the first time. And let me tell you what we've been talking about for, for about six weeks now. We're talking about thin places. A thin place is a place in life, it's an experience in life, a moment in life when the distance between you and God becomes very, very near and very close. It could be a mountaintop moment, it could be a valley moment, it could be a moment of suffering, a moment of joy. And we've talked about all kinds of moments in the life of Jesus where where God was revealed in a real powerful way and how he is still revealing himself to us. Don't you know, don't you know this morning that Jesus is alive and he's with us and he continues to speak to us every day? It's wonderful that we serve a risen Savior. Today, though, our thin place is a garbage dump. I will tell you, it's the first time I've ever used the word garbage dump in a sermon or as a sermon title. But let me tell you what that means. Outside of Jerusalem, outside the city walls, there was a garbage dump. It was called Golgotha, or the place of the skull. After Palm Sunday took place, uh, that following week, the Roman officials and the uh, religious leaders conspired to put Jesus to death. And they then led him through the streets to outside the city, outside the city walls, and crucified Jesus Christ on top of a garbage dump. The scripture that I'm going to be reading to you this morning is from Mark's gospel, and it's probably my favorite because it is so clear, so precise, and it leads to a very dramatic moment in the story where a Roman centurion looks at Jesus on the dump being crucified and said, this is the Son of God. Now, the reason I'm talking about this today is because 30%, 30%, 30% of the gospel narratives deal with the last week of Jesus' life. 
But we don't talk about it very much. We condense it to one week, Holy Week. And this morning I want to talk to you about what the cross really means in a bigger level. Most of us, when we talk about the cross of Jesus, we narrow it to a very narrow definition of the purpose of the cross. Now, it's a great narrow reason. The cross basically says that that God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world to die on the cross for our sins that we would be forgiven and we would receive the gift of eternal life. That is the great message of the gospel. That anyone who turns to Jesus, anybody who welcomes Jesus, anyone who receives Jesus, that Jesus is for you, that you can't save yourself, I can't save myself, that God loves us and sent his son to the cross for us. But I want to point out to you, that is the most basic understanding of the cross, and it points to life beyond this life. But what I want to share with you this morning is the idea that the cross of Jesus has as much to say about this life as it does the next life. Our Christian hope is not a hope of a life to come, but it's a hope of life now. Because the same way that Jesus was crucified, forgotten, and abandoned on a garbage heap outside of the city of Jerusalem in Golgotha, there are people all over this world today who have been left behind hurting, wounded, in the garbage dumps of this world. And also, even in this room, there are people who feel forsaken, alone, and lost in a dump yourself. That's what the cross is about. So this morning, I want to read the story, and then I want to tell you what I think this means. We're going to begin at verse 22, but I'm going to give a little detail, then we're going to read the scripture, and then I'm going to talk about what this means. If you look in the Gospel of Mark, it says that after Jesus was handed over to the Romans, he was led into the palace. And there in the palace, he took some thorns and twisted it into a crown and placed it on his head firmly. They then began to mock him as the king of the Jews. If you're the king of the Jews, why not save yourself, king of the Jews? They spit on him, they cursed him, and they beat him repeatedly with a staff. They put a purple robe on him to humiliate him, and then they stripped him down bare naked and then put his clothes back on him. It then says this this very simple line, then they led him out to crucify him. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you, who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. But the Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. 
at noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near him heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This is the Word of God. Amen. This morning I want to talk to you about the full meaning of the cross. And I want to talk not so much about what the cross means for us when we die as much as what the cross means for us right here and now. Because our greatest hope, our greatest hope of the cross is not life beyond this life, but the life for this life. Because I think that the cross speaks to your depression, to your heartbreak, to your loneliness, to the loneliness and the heartbreak in the world. Wherever we see injustice, wherever we see pain, wherever we see suffering, wherever we see hate, the cross speaks to it. What Mark is saying in his gospel, he is saying essentially, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus crucified, naked, bleeding, and dying on a cross. That's what God looks like. For in the gospel of Mark, the climax of his gospel is the crucifixion, not the resurrection. It's the crucifixion. It's an identification with those who suffer and live in pain in this world. And that Jesus took the world's sin on his body, absorbed it, and responded to the evil by giving himself back with love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. What we see in the cross of Jesus, God redefining himself and his power as being willing to offer himself in weakness and in love and mercy instead of a violence and power and might. He's offering a clear alternative to the world that is built on violence and power and evil by offering his very life, absorbing it into himself, and then giving back love. Because in the end, the gospel says the love will win. Love always wins. That's why today we didn't sing a hymn to Caiaphas. That's why there has been no hymn written to Pontius Pilate. Because his kingdom now spreads all over the world. The Roman Empire is no more. The empire that killed Jesus is no more. But the kingdom of God lives in the hearts of humble people all over this world who've received Jesus and died to their own life and began a new life in him to serve and give their lives away to others as he gave his life to us. I'm preaching now, Dave, and I'm not even started. So I want to talk to you today about three things. I want to share with you who killed Jesus how they killed Jesus, and then what does it mean? 
Who killed Jesus? It was a collaboration between two groups of people, the religious authorities and the political authorities, the Roman authorities. The religious authorities did not like Jesus because Jesus tore down the walls that existed between good people and bad people. Jesus said there are no good people and no bad people. There's just people. He tore down the wall between the clean and the unclean. He ate dinner, shared meals, prayed with, touched people who were considered undesirables and outcasts, lepers, tax collectors, prostitutes, pagans, unbelievers. And he said, these people are our people, and God loves everybody on this earth as much as he loves anybody else. And nobody has a right in pride to stand above another human being to say who God can love and who can't. Because of the way he lived and the way he loved, the religious authorities hated what he was doing because his kingdom was built on inclusion rather than a kingdom built on exclusion of those who are different, those who are wounded, and those who are in pain. Jesus then went on and defied the Sabbath laws, said Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and put mercy and forgiveness above the Sabbath and healed on the Sabbath. He didn't observe the dietary laws. And when he got to Jerusalem, he went to the temple and overturned the money changers' tables in the temple that were there to take advantage of the poor who'd come there to make an offering to God, essentially saying, you don't have to make a sacrifice in a temple and to give money here to be received. For forgiveness, it's yours already. He tore down the religious system. He then looked at them and he said, this whole building, this whole temple is going to come down and be rebuilt in three days. And he was talking about his own life and his own body. His harshest words were, was criticism for religious people, religious leaders. At one point he looked at them and called them hypocrites. And he said, your souls are like whitewashed tombs filled with dead man's bones. Not a way to win friends and influence people, is it? Not a popular way to preach a sermon. Not a pleasing word to the ear. And so the religious authorities conspired against Jesus that week, got to one of his uh, disciples, plotted against him, and then the religious authorities sentenced Jesus to die for blasphemy, for calling himself, for being the Messiah the Son of God. They then handed Jesus over to the other conspirator. They handed him over to Pontius Pilate. And you know why Pilate was in Rome that day? He was in Rome because it was Passover. And Pontius Pilate, who represented the Roman authorities, went to Jerusalem every Passover because Passover incited people's emotions and their feelings. Because it referred back to a day when they were living under another oppressor, the Egyptians, and how God, through Moses, delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. Every Passover, they would think about their suffering under the Romans. They would think about the Roman occupation. They were thinking that right on the edge of the temple was a Roman fort that was used to oppress them and to hold them down. And so every Passover, someone would walk in town, some new rebel, some new zealot, some new person designed to overthrow the Romans. This particular year, it happened to be Barabbas. You remember Barabbas? They wanted Barabbas instead of Jesus. Crucified Jesus, give us Barabbas. Barabbas was a rebel. He was a revolutionary. Jesus was crucified between two rebels that were fighting for freedom from the Romans. So Pontius Pilate was there to put down any threat to the kingdom. In fact, on Palm Sunday, we understand that as Jesus was marching into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, one symbol of power and humility and love, on the other side of the city, marching in at the same time, was Pontius Pilate on the back of a stallion 
carrying a big sword, armored, and with soldiers behind him. A whole other image of power. I bet that day someone from the Romans would have looked at Jesus and said, yeah, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Let's see what that gets him. But we know the end of the story because the meek do inherit the earth. Always. And love itself always wins. So they sentenced Jesus to die. Sentenced Jesus to die because of insurrection. Because he's a rebel claiming another kingdom. Some people say, well, you know, the Jewish people killed Jesus. It was both of them working together that killed Jesus. They both conspired together. Because I'll remind you, there was not a Jewish hand on the hammer that nailed the nails into Jesus' feet in his hands. It was a Roman. And the Romans didn't do anything they didn't want to do. They collaborated together. And they both believed that they were doing the right thing because they were trying to keep peace in the city of Jerusalem. You know, Caiaphas himself said, the high priest said at one point, he said, it's better that the whole, that one man die than a whole nation perishes. One man die than the nation perishes. Now let me just add this little caveat here. I think it's very important in the world we live in today that I make this point. The religious leadership and the Roman leadership conspired to kill Jesus. Religious leadership and political leadership still conspire to mute and kill those who love the way that Jesus loved. Beware of any religious leader who endorses a political leader as God's agent. And beware of any political leader who uses religious leadership to advance his aims. The kingdom of God belongs to no political party, to no nation, to no ethnicity, to no race, to no religion, to no one. It is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God only has one king, one leader. His name is Jesus, Jesus alone. And he showed what real power looks like. It's forgiveness and mercy. So how did they kill Jesus? Crucifixion, it wasn't invented by the Romans, but they perfected it. Crucifixion was thought of as the most horrible, painful, torturous, humiliating way for a person to die, form of execution possible. The Romans killed people in a lot of different ways, but they reserved crucifixion for special cases. They crucified thieves, slaves, and those guilty of insurrection. They would mount them to a cross. They would inflict as much pain on them as possible. They would march them through the city. They would hang them on a cross, nail their feet and hands to the cross, naked, dying, screaming, bleeding, the most painful way to die on the top of a trash heap. Why? If you steal or if you think that you're going to overthrow Rome, this is what will happen to you. We'll show you what real power looks like. They crucified rebels and they crucified thieves. And they left, excuse this truth, but it's true. They would leave the body hanging on the cross until the body was scavenged by birds and dogs. And then they didn't bury the body. That's why they called it the place of the skull, because bones were scattered across the dump. That's significant because the idea that Jesus was buried in a tomb and that his body was taken down is an exception to Roman rule. What the Romans and the religious authorities were attempting to do to Jesus is say, this is where it ends. It ends right here. Uh, this is what we think about you and the way that you love and serve in the world. So my point then is, look at what Mark is saying. 
Do you understand why I'm sharing this with you this morning? Because if you haven't heard all of this information I'm sharing with you, if you've just had a very small understanding of the cross, you can't understand the power of what Mark is saying here. A Roman centurion, not the disciples, not the religious leadership, not the political leadership, not the crowds, a Roman centurion who participated in the death of Jesus looks at Jesus and says, this is the Son of God, a man dying on a cross, the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? Let me tell you what it means. It does mean that Jesus took our sins on himself. It does mean that you are loved that much. It's the statement and the truth that brought me to Christ when I was 16 years old. I couldn't believe that God loved me so much enough to send his son into the world to die for me, to receive my sins, to give me something I couldn't do for myself, the gift of eternal life and life in this world. But it also means something else. It also means where is God at work in our world? It was God's statement of saying that no one will be left behind, that everyone is important, that every person in this world who has been nailed onto a cross and a Golgotha on their own is wanted and loved by God. For every forgotten person, every betrayed person, every person who's a victim of injustice, every person who's been oppressed because of the color of their skin, or every person who's poor and hungry, think about all the Golgothas in our world. All over our world, there are Roman dumps and political dumps and places of devastation and suffering all over this world where people are suffering and dying. And it's God's way of saying, you want to know where I am in the world? I'm in the world wherever people are crying out, my God, why have you left me? My God, why have you forsaken me? My point this morning is it's an important point. The point is that Jesus is not waiting for me in heaven when I die. He's waiting for me here now to join him in the work that he's doing. If the cross of Jesus does not call upon us as Christian people to go to Golgotha to serve him and to meet the needs of the poor and the suffering in this world, then the cross has absolutely no power and we've lost its truth and its meaning. The purpose of Christianity is not just to make life better for people when they die. Its purpose is to make life better for people now and to join with him in the world. That's why we carry our cross. We carry our cross to follow him to those places in the world. Look at this picture. This is one symbol of Christianity. I've been there. St. Peter's in Rome. My family and I went there. We were impressed and inspired by the beauty of the facility and what takes place there. The Pope there is a very humble, grace-filled man. But then we went to Florence, Italy a few days later. We found this beautiful church. Nobody knows about it. Hardly everybody's been to it. But we walked inside, and this is what I found. A crucifix carved by Michelangelo. Simple, vulnerable, and I stood in front of it and tears rolled down my cheeks because I knew that I had seen what I believe to be the true meaning of what it means to follow Jesus in this world. To offer our lives the way he offered his life for us. And I point out to you, if you want to know what God is like, God, God is not like this. 
I'm not criticizing St. Peter's. But if you want to know what God is like, he's not the symbol of power and might. He is the symbol of weakness and love, identifies with people who are living in weakness and pain and suffering in the world. That's what it means. That's why Jürgen Moltmann, a German theologian, German theologian in the Second World War, uh, did not believe in God, was an atheist. Why? And when he went uh, to a prisoner war camp hosted by the British, when he opened the New Testament and read for the first time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was feeling so lost and forsaken. He heard, read those words and he said, here's a God that understands me. And he became a Christian because God found him in a dump, in a Golgotha of his own. And what's really beautiful about that story to me is that Jürgen Moltmann went on to become one of the greatest theologians from an atheist to the greatest theologians of the 20th century who wrote a powerful book, two books, one called about the theology of hope and the other, Hope for People Living in Golgotha, and a book called The Crucified God. That's what it means. Can I share with you something that's a bit brash and bold and confrontational? I got, I got, a, I got a couple minutes. You're going to give me a couple more minutes here? Are, we, are you with me so far? Okay, week of love is coming up. I expect every member in our church to serve. Because being a follower of Jesus is not just going to church and being a good moral person. It means doing what Jesus did. 400 people serving during the week of love for just one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours is not enough. Why can't everybody do something that week? I don't care if it's just help rake someone's leaves. Why can't we all find a way to give expression to the one who went to the cross for others? Why can't we? The last thing I want to share with you is the cross reveals a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. The cross is the alternative to the sword. And there is no place within Christian faith, Christianity does not sanction violence of any kind. None. Jesus was a person of nonviolence who died on the cross for his enemies. And Christianity should never sanction and endorse violence of any kind. We are always people who show mercy, kindness, and love for other people. And the truth of the gospel is the cross teaches us that we are to be people of mercy too. When we respond to hate with hate, when we respond to aggression with aggression, when we re- I respond to violence with violence, when I respond to insult with insult, we deny Christ who absorbed evil and responded to the hate with love. You see where I'm coming from? When we, we deny the power of the cross, when we ourselves respond to hate with hate and injury with injury. The last thing Jesus did on the cross was forgive those who nailed him to it. This is a huge challenge. Because like you, I don't get mad, I get even. Like you, I get wounded, I get hurt. Like you, I put myself, I put myself above others. But when I look at that man hanging on the cross, I think to myself, how can I resist it? It's the hope of our world. Jesus didn't make me a Christian just so I could escape this life to the next life. 
He called me to be a Christian to lay my down my life and to be crucified with him. And I'm convicted by that. I'm preaching now to myself. Because when I look at the cross, I realize how selfish I am, how judgmental I am, how arrogant I am, how sin-filled I am, how lustful I am, how greedy I am. But I also realize how good he is, how kind he is, how loving he is, and that when I look inside myself and I see the Golgotha that is within me, I know that the one who went there is big enough to save me. That's the gospel, folks. 